Sego, Sewaguego, greetings everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory in the summer and fall of 2020. These podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services. My name is Lisa Venevri from the Mohawk Nation and Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name program. Welcome to the Ohate Negasuna podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. On this episode of Yohate Negasuna is all about Diskahe. We'll have a guest joining us later and we'll have an in-depth discussion about Diskahe, who he was, his life, and why he was so significant to the Haudenosaunee people. In 1917, at the age of 40, Levi General was condoled as Diskahe, a hereditary chief representing the Cayuga Nation and the Bear Clan of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Many consider him a great leader and a defender of Haudenosaunee sovereign rights at a time in Haudenosaunee history when the Canadian government were brutal in their mission to assimilate the Haudenosaunee civilization into Canadian culture. Descahe, which translates to more than 11 in the English language, was a gifted orator and relentless representative for the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. In 1921, he was appointed Speaker of the Confederacy Council, and he and lawyer George P. Decker traveled to England to attempt to gain international recognition at the newly formed League of Nations with the goal to be admitted as a sovereign nation. They were stalled at every turn by England and Canada and lobbying of these two entities were powerful, powerful influences on the other members of the League. Ultimately, Diskahi was not successful and he returned to Turtle Island in 1924. He was blocked entry into Canada in spite of the Jay Treaty being in existence which allowed free border crossing for Indigenous people. While Diskahe was detained, the Canadian government continued their assault on Haudenosaunee governance. In 1924, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police raided the traditional council house at Six Nations of the Grand River and imposed the elected system of governance, which still exists today. Diskahe lived in exile at the Tuscarora Reservation in New York State until his death in June 1925. He was buried at Six Nations at the Cayuga Longhouse, where a monument is raised to commemorate his significance to the people of Six Nations of the Grand River. In December 1925, his brother, Alexander General, was condoled as Chief Discahe, and he continued the work of Levi General. In 1930, he traveled to England to persuade the monarchy that Canada had no jurisdiction over Haudenosaunee people. Alexander consulted with many anthropologists between 1932 and 1959. Today, the Six Nations of the Grand River is a community of two governments, 
the traditional and the elected. On this episode, we welcome Shelby Bumbry for a discussion about Discahe. Welcome, Shelby. Hello. I'm very happy to be here to join the discussion today. I am, first of all, I want to say that I'm only going to present what I've learned in my very few years here in my journey. Um, I work at Six Nations Polytechnic and I'm a project assistant in um, learning the Kyuga language and creating resources for other students to learn. So this is um, a little different for me in uh, my learning of Diskahe. It's been basically, um, how do you say, um, leisurely educational, but I still enjoy it. I still enjoy our history. And um, I guess firstly, um, in the discussion of Diskahe, he was uh, like me, I guess. And we kind of grew up in a traditional fashion around the reserve at Six Nations. It's very um, quiet and remote and very um, immersive in family and traditional values. And that's something that kind of hold dear, I guess, to myself and my family. What was Descahe's early life like? So Descahe's early life, um, it'd be kind of very difficult to pinpoint, but I would say it was back then very common. He grew up in a traditional, traditional household of uh, Kyuga language speakers. He was born March 15th, 1873. So life that back then was very remote, very um, hardworking, very dependent on others. And uh, he spent his life, like many of that, uh, at Longhouse, attending ceremony. I believe in the book, uh, basically called The Consciousness, it refers to him that he was a very common person back then. And like many, he was very sincere, humble, and honest. And he uh, utilized the Jay Treaty in his younger years to travel to Allegheny Mountains to work as a lumberjack. Then after an accident, he was forced to come home back to Six Nations Reserve and begin work here as a farmer. Like many back then, the farmer was laborious and it was very necessary for us. Okay, Shelby, tell us about the Jay Treaty. Can you explain a little bit about that? So the Jay Treaty is um, Grant's privilege to specifically the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois to allow them free passage over the border as our traditional life or life before European, European age, we were um, able to travel freely and there were no such things as borders. There were no landmarks or there was nothing defining a certain area to anything. So we were allowed to travel back and forth freely. Not only that, for work, we were allowed to take um, back and forth crop and any other means of um, work, such as lumbering or what have you. And we were able to do this freely in one of the treaties, the Jay Treaty, which is still in force today. We were able to travel freely and there is also a march every year which allows people to walk freely across the bridge, which is still being utilized today, which is something very nice to see. How would you describe what he's best known for and how did he get started on that path? Well, I would say what he is best known for was um, speaking out to the overall injustices and um, the lack of upholding the treaty rights that we have um, made with not only the Canadian government, but the, prior to their um, coming to be, would be the British Crown and the French. Um, so first and foremost, I guess, when he was appointed um, chief of the Cuban nation, Discahe, in Bear Klein, I believe, 
he was uh, he was only 40 years old and I guess to some people that's old some people that's young in terms of cheapness I guess I would say that's um, that's around middle age I guess and he was quite successful in that he attended uh, Sour Springs Longhouse which is near third line in Cheesewood Road on the reserve and he was an active speaker in Longhouse but he was also well versed in the English language which would be his second language he was very articulate and very um, outspoken, I guess. But he was very active in um, raising the awareness of the broken treaties and broken promises. And uh, he was able to force very difficult questions and very difficult answers out of certain people, that being the Canadian government. And in doing this, he caused a lot of discomfort among them. And even if his words weren't directed at them specifically, whether they were listening on radio or reading his words on paper, there's a sense of uneasiness in, upon reading these words. So his life's work was very, um, very important to us. And a lot of what he said, you got to think this is almost 100 years ago, 1920, when he began his journey on his path, little after World War I, which um, many of the Six Nations helped out in that war. And after returning, he was very active in speaking out against um, upholding these treaties and uphold, upholding these rights and promises. And um, a lot of what he said then is still relevant today with their own problems here on the reserve with um, elected government and the traditional government. We're still seeing problems today. Things that he, um, I wouldn't say predicted, but he's seen coming. There's a fine line between predicting and seeing a problem coming forth just to pure logic. And that's one thing that the um, Europeans, where he traveled, the Swiss and um, Netherlands, they were all surprised at how smart he was, how logical, how intelligent, and how he carried himself. He was very humble, he never gloated, whether he would use certain words to articulate um, a matter and a problem, and even answering his own problem with what the solution would be. Some of them would be um, astounded at his articulation and his speech and his uh, critical thinking. I would say, above all, that would be the most important thing that um, he did, was he was able to articulate his matters and his our matters, I guess, and our problems in such a way that he could make someone feel uncomfortable because, well, it, he only spoke the truth. And what he spoke was ongoing and still ongoing to this day. Shelby, can you give us an example of an excerpt from one of Discahe's speeches i know he was a he was a fabulous orator okay so one part that i feel is very um important in his last speech is um well the whole thing is great itself but i'll, I'll read one part from the book um, basic call to consciousness which is i believe available on goodminds.com which is a good good book to have if you're interested in reading more about discovery and treaty rights so it's on page 50 if you ever get a hold of this book it's about center page, so I'll start the excerpt here. To punish us for trying to preserve our rights, the Canadian government has pretended to abolish our government by royal proclamation and has pretended to set up a Canadian-made government over us, composed of the few traders among us who are willing to accept pay from Ottawa and to do its bidding. Finally, Ottawa officials, under pretense of a friendly visit, asked to inspect our precious wampum belts, made by our fathers centuries ago, as records of our history, and when shown to them, the false-faced officials seized and carried away those belts as bandits take away your precious belongings. 
The only difference was that our aged welcome keeper did not put his hands up. Our hands only go up when we address the great spirit. Yours go up, I hear, only when someone of you is trying to go through the pockets of his own white brother. According to your newspapers, they are now up for a good deal of time. Wow, Descahe really told it like it was, right? He didn't mince words. And sometimes when we're talking about our sovereign rights, we really need to use strong words. And, and I think Descahe encouraged us to do that. When we look back at, at the way he, he spoke, um, it's real inspiration and encouragement for us to continue that today because we're still talking to the same governments that he talked to. Yeah, I think that's true in many ways. And I like to touch on the wampum belt part. Is, um, I think, I believe this happened when he was actually in Geneva, or not Geneva, but uh, Switzerland. He was still over there. And he got a letter back from his brother, um, Alexander. They were mailing back and forth. And he caught wind of this, I guess, that they had took the wampum belts. And um, he had uh, wrote back to him saying that, well, they're kind of foolish to think that just because they took something like that, that we would forget the story and the meaning it holds. Our meanings are in our words, and these wampum belts are merely a notion for them to understand. We understand it, and we know the stories that go with it. We know the tale that's told when these belts are brought out. And um, I believe we have gotten these belts back, and they are in safekeeping with uh, a new wampum keeper and he holds them very dearly. Well, that's something to point out, the oration. It's purely uh, memorization of meaning, not really words, but to get a point across. And um, just to touch on the more oration, I guess, is that speakers like Descahe, and even nowadays, the first, um, or the few first language speakers we have left, they don't, um, when I ask them about speaking, they don't mention words or anything. They mention ideas. So uh, this, picture, I guess, they paint with their words in their mind, and that's all they're talking about, which is something unique to me. I've always been interested in that. But for these belts, they hold a story, and there's a tale to be told when they're when you see them. But just because they're there doesn't mean that the, the words or the oration story goes down or goes missing. These tales will always be known, and these stories will always be here, just like the words of Descahe today. I think that's that's so true because um since the last three years i've been learning language and i've learned that in within the language are our concepts of thinking and we may um try to learn the words this word means that this word means that but we also need to learn the concepts within the words because our culture is really in our language, like you exactly like you were saying. Okay, Shelby, can you tell us about when um, Descahe went to London and what he did um, when he got there? So the first time um, Descahe traveled over to London, actually, was uh, August 1921 with uh, George Decker, his lawyer he had counseled with. And he was seeking um, help from the British Crown at that time to seek aid for their um, problem they were having with the Canadian government and the imposing of the RCMP barracks on the reserve, the uh, taking of... Um, he was actually being harassed, like many back then. Um, Descahe was well known 
back then, like I said, he was very humble and kind and honest. And he uh, was known to abstain from alcohol. But the RSMP actually um, harassed him and raided his home maybe a few times that we know of. But maybe one that I'll speak of was they raided his home and many others around where he lived to search for alcohol. And it was just like an ongoing issue, an ongoing fight just to live, basically. Like unprovoked, he was just wanting to live normal life, but he was out constantly being harassed and um, meddled with. But when he went over to London, he was seeking aid from then George V, because his forefather, George III, made an agreement with the Iroquois at Six Nations to honor rights and uphold um, treaties, and they would always be protected. And then Winston Churchill, the undersecretary, I believe then, he dismissed the plea and told him that the British, and or the Crown, I guess, back then, would uh, have no hand in a Canadian domestic um, issue and matter like they were dealing with back home. Shelby, can you tell us about his trips to Geneva? What, what happened the first time he went there? So when Descahe went to Geneva, Switzerland, he arrived in September 1923, seeking aid and um, raising his issue with um, the League of Nations then, as they were meeting in Geneva, as they did quite often. And there he met, again, constant struggle, constant um, misguided, misguided um, information, where he was never um, taken seriously, given very little thought. And he, this is where many letters are um, recorded with him and his, his wife, his um, four daughters and five sons, and his brother Alex. And they were constantly writing back and forth. He was there for, I believe, a year and a year and a half, maybe. And um, he stayed there trying to raise issues, trying to lobby with um, the League of Nations, where he met very little, met very little success. And then finally, he was running out of money. He was very broke, not eating very much and sleeping very little. So he um, paired up with a artist then, and they were able to sell a painting of one of his pictures. And I believe this picture is in the book as well, basically called The Consciousness. And they were able to raise, I'm not sure what the money in Swiss is, but brought over 6,000 Swiss um, currency. And that meant to a Canadian dollar, which is a little over $1,000. So back in 1920, that's a fair bit of money. And he was able to continue his fight and continue lobbying, continue raising the issue with his campaign that he was fighting. And in the his letter, he uh, extends that he was very troubled in his spirit, in his mind. He was losing hope. He was, his health was very much deteriorating. And um, he makes a claim that he was praying a lot. There's a different word that we use in the language, but the closest we can translate it to is kind of praying. So he was praying to our creator that he would help, which is kind of interesting to me because someone who is very political, who's very um, astute, I guess, in the political language, not only in the Cayuga language, but in the English language as well, that when times get tough and you are facing hardships, that he himself went back to our traditional ways, using our sacred tobacco and using those words to carry up with our creator. And this is something he relied on to help get him through his troubling times. So when he came back, he was, um, he came back to the stateside 
and he was met with opposition at the Canadian border and he was denied entry. And this is something that many of us are working on now, is trying to figure out why he was denied entry and even claims that he was um, exiled. So no one can figure out exactly what he was, I guess, charged with or the reasoning for his exile. But this is where he began his last six months in the States. He stayed at the Tuscarora Reservation for the final six months of his life, traveling to Rochester for radio shows and public speaking, where he continued again with his same speech of the injustices and the broken promises of our treaties. And this is where his final speech comes from, which is um, dated March 10th, 1925, I believe. And um, during the final, I guess, eight weeks of his life, he was battling very, very, um, very deathly sickness. And his family was unable to come over to see their father, their husband, their brother in his final weeks. And the U.S. government uh, turned them around and didn't allow his family to come see him for his final resting days at Tuscarora Reservation. He finally passed in June 27, 1925, and he was uh, laid to rest where a monument has been erected in his memory at the Sour Springs Longhouse on Six Nations Reserve. That would be a question for the Canadian government. Was Descahe charged with anything then? And why was he denied entry to come back to his homeland? With everything going on today in terms of land reclamation, um, rights, indigenous rights, gee, Shelby, what do you think Descahe would, would be saying today? Well, first, I would say that's a difficult question to answer, but as I feel like with everything going on today, it's very difficult to put a finger on. Um, I know there's a lot going on today with our people. We still have two believed um, forms of government back home at Six Nations Reserve, one being the imposed elected system and the traditional um, hereditary council of chiefs. And it's very hard to maybe one group is very difficult to work with and the um, I would say the what the Scotty would do was to band the people together, the believers, the um, those who are firm in their beliefs, who are together as one mind, which is something we always say not only in I don't want to say prayer but in our longhouse, in our traditional beliefs that we are stronger as one. And it's something we always mention that our mind is our minds are one now and that we can begin something because we don't we don't do things separately we always wait until there's consensus there's always one mind so it's something we always have to do and the more divided we are the um the weaker we become and for back home what's going on right now with the um, elected system and all the troubles that are being carried forward today that they're doing, they're constantly um, putting us at risk, not only for our land, but our um, resources, our, um, the homes of many other beings, not just human, but animals as well, birds. And these are all very important, not only for us, they're important for um, sustaining human life and that we have to 
again, trust that our creator has our best intention at heart, that we have to, again, use our tobacco to not only pray for what's best, but to act. And action is the last point and last step in going to where we're inevitably going to end up anyways. So we need to act in um, as one mind, as one people. And maybe it's kind of straightforward, but I'm sure that's how Discahe would do it, was to not only ask that the elected system, I don't want to say step down, but step aside and let people who have the intention of the, the best intention of the people at heart to come forward. Because it's obvious that with what's going on right now, the elected system is maybe maybe not thinking with the best mind or the best heart, and that the people who are thinking with a good mind and a good heart, they can come forward and maybe take over for a little while and do what's best for our people and to have have the tough discussions that need to be had, not only with the government, but with our people as well. And it's um, something that, again, Discahe was known for, was asking difficult, difficult questions. And he was able to force an answer out of a difficult question. And he was able to create this idea that what you know needs to be done can be done. And because I'm asking this question, you know what you need to do already. I want to thank you, Shelby, for um, being our guest today on, on our episode about Discahe. It's, it's so inspiring that we had the benefit of Discahe's work to look at in our history. Because um, no more than today, it, it's really imperative that we can look back in our history and find some inspiration. We are, we are in need of inspiration today to bring about unity in the community because of all the things we face. And not only as Six Nations territory, but all across Turtle Island. I think sometimes we're, we're all in the same space and, and having the same issues. So I wanna thank Shelby Bomber today for being our guest on the episode about the Skahe. Yahweh for listening to the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Venevery. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. This has been the Yohate Negasuna podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada.